Hi, Scott and John here. Yeah, folks, the world is fast approaching the end game, and we are trying to expose the upcoming deception before time runs out. We want to make this a full-time goal, and we need your support to fight the satanic global elite. So here's how you can help. Subscribe to the new Bible Mysteries Premium Podcast to listen to every episode ad-free. Plus, get full access to our special guest interviews and special events, downloadable show notes, our Bible Mysteries monthly newsletter, and access to a new community forum. Sure. So just go to BibleMysteries.Supercast.com or you can click the uh, link in the show notes to get started today. Thanks again. Welcome to Bible Mysteries. You're listening to episode 95, The Final Nephilim, Interview with Ryan Pedersen, Part 1. What if there are secrets in the Bible the world doesn't want you to know? Are you ready to take the red pill? Now here are your hosts, Scott and John. Well, hello and welcome once again to Bible Mysteries Podcast, the show that tells you the things in the Bible the world doesn't want you to know. I have a very special guest with me, Ryan Peterson, author and lecturer. And of course, now you're you're venturing into the film world too, are you not? <laughs> yes, that is correct. <laughs> Ryan, welcome back. Uh, for those of you that don't know, we have interviewed Ryan in the past uh, when his first book, the 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 Nephilim, uh, the Judgment of the Nephilim, came out. I'm going to hold it up and plug this book because it's been one of the greatest books. And and here I thought that this book was one of the best books I've ever read on dealing with the subject of the Nephilim. And I did not think you were going to ever write a book as good as this one after this, Ryan. But then you turned around and the Lord gave you the grace to do the final Nephilim, which I consider to be one of the best books of end times prophecy that I've ever read. And I do read quite a bit. So that's not just me whistling Dixie here. I really do believe if you haven't read this book, you are in for a really uh, an amazing treat. So Ryan, thank you for sharing your gifts with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. And thank you for the kind words and amazing review. I appreciate it. And, uh, and honestly, coming from you, it's high praise. You really get into the scripture, which I love. So I'm always happy to come and speak with you, spend time with you. So I really, really praise God that you appreciated both books. You bet. It has been a, a tremendous blessing. I thank God for my dear friend, Brother John, who told me about you those years ago. And I've just been thanking him ever since. Uh, and uh, another uh, plug for you, too. I want to make sure that my podcast listeners and watchers know that Ryan also hosts a weekly show called Thursday Night Theology on Facebook. And uh, that has been also very exciting. He will take your questions. So you can, is that right? They can write and prepare them in advance. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Put them in my social, I get all the questions from my social media, from my Facebook, from Instagram, YouTube, or from my, or just emailing me. And I usually pick two or three questions that are really about tough questions from the Bible, mysteries, dealing with the supernatural and uh, apply my research to answer them on the show. That's awesome. Well, we're going to dive into some things about the final Nephilim uh, as stuff that I've just been fascinated over. And then we're also going to talk about some things that you didn't necessarily address in the book, but you and I've had a few discussions and uh, really would love to get your take on some things. So let me start with uh, you bring up a couple of points in, on the back cover of the final Nephilim. And I'm just going to quote a couple of the lines you, you say, will the fallen angels once again attempt to mingle themselves with the seed of men. And another question that I believe is related is, what role do UFOs and alien phenomena play in the end of time events? And I think you'll agree that there's probably a connection there. So my, 
my first question for you is this. So I've, I've read um, uh, your book, I've read uh, and, and watched information from other authors. Do you contend that the fallen angels are in fact the uh, so-called UFO alien phenomenon, or do you believe, as some do, that there might actually be extraterrestrial beings that perhaps are either in league with or being manipulated by fallen angels? Yeah, I definitely fall in the first category where I believe it's a spiritual phenomenon that's posing, right? I, I do believe that they, they can present themselves as beings from another planet. They're not claiming to be from heaven or from hell or from anything like that, from the spirit realm. But I do believe it's a spiritual phenomenon of the fallen angels and the demons. You know, we're told in scripture, Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. He can literally, you know, change and transform his appearance like a shapeshifter. Yeah. Uh, and he says it's no wonder that his ministers can masquerade as ministers of righteousness. So I think that we have to take that seriously, that they can disguise themselves. And if you think about it, even in scripture, the the gods, the lower G gods of the uh, the pagan nations all throughout the Bible, you know, these were spirit beings. They weren't just worshiping imaginary beings all throughout scripture and you know, right. the bible tells us that these that they were demons that these were devils the gods of the the idols of the pagans uh, were devils so that they were worshiping demons were posing as god-like figures and so uh, i think that's how it all ties into the alien ufo phenomenon yeah I, I i couldn't agree more in fact um i'll i'll mention to you because i know you know him uh we interviewed la marzuli not too long ago and not only would he agree with your assessment there but he also believes that it's very possible and likely that something such as like the alien grays as they're called uh may be constructed uh host bodies for these uh, uh disembodied spirits that we would call devils or demons Right. And, and then even looking at the modern stories of abductees, of you know, these abduction accounts where a lot of what's going on. Well, first on the body point, you're right. Right. We know that from scriptures that demons, unlike fallen angels, do not have bodies. They're just they're the spirits of the dead Nephilim. And so they are right. seeking bodies. Jesus said they, they basically treat us like a house. They see our body as a literal house to live in. And then so you, so you have that aspect of it. But also. So much of the accounts you see of abductions deal with reproduction, deal with uh, looking at reproductive organs, trying to impregnate a woman, something that, that relates to DNA, reproduction. Mm -hmm. Again, I see the full manifestation of the UFO phenomenon in the end times, in the Great Tribulation. I think that's when it's going to manifest. And, and of course, we know from scripture that's going to be a repetition of the days of Noah. And yes. I really look also at... Uh, what I point to in, in, in the final Nephilim is Revelation chapter 12. And I think that's really the moment that everything can take place. When you have this description of the war in heaven, where Michael and his, his, his angels defeat Satan, and Satan is permanently evicted, and all the fallen angels not, who were not a part of the Genesis 6 rebellion are now cast to earth. I believe that's the moment where we have to understand that these angels are going to literally manifest. We're going to be able to see them. The veil between the spirit realm and the human realm will be removed. And so right. we will see them, the people on earth. Jesus said that men's hearts will fail them for what they see coming on the earth. And I think that's the point when the UFO, the alien deception can take place. You know, I, I quote Hippolytus, who wrote the oldest extant 
treatise on revelation on Christ and Antichrist, circa 202 AD. And he described that exact passage saying, what if those angels came, you know, bathed in beautiful light, singing with heavenly voices, beautiful voices, not coming as attackers and aggressors, but actually saying, pretending and masquerading to be benevolent beings. And that's where I think they could present themselves and say, yes, we are from another planet. We are not, you know, we are beings from another planet. We created humanity 7,000 years ago. We seeded you here and now we're here to help you advance and evolve. And oh, by the way, don't worry about all those people who just disappeared, you know, in the rapture. They were not ready to advance to this next stage of human evolution. So we had to remove them from earth in order to prepare it for you and this paradise we're going to bring you. So I think that's where it can really, really take place. Exactly. And in fact, you're, you're, uh, the title of the final Nephilim is really a reference to the Antichrist, who will be a Nephilim. And uh, as you as you point out in the book that uh, he will be a hybrid between probably fathered by the serpent himself and a, and a human woman. Um, do you believe that that transaction, that conception, uh, which is going to uh, emulate in the fraud sense, uh, the, the divine conception of Christ, uh, do you believe that is going to take place and he'll be an adult within three years, like all this transpiring within the seven years of Jacob's trouble? Or do you think it's possible he could be conceived prior to that time and grow to maturity? What is your take on that? I think he will be conceived prior to that time. I think that everything, you know, Isaiah 14, 14, that Satan wants to be like the most high. Mm-hmm. Antichrist is the strong delusion. Satan is literally trying to trick the world into believing his seed that God mm-hmm. told him he was going to have in Genesis three fifteen. You know, we always talk about the seed of the woman, but the other seed of Genesis three fifteen is Antichrist. That's what God said. There's going to be enmity between both seeds and told the devil. From the beginning, he was going to have an offspring. And I believe just like Jesus, where he Jesus was born as a baby, it's mm-hmm. he grew, he, he cried, he was hungered, he thirsted, that he grew in knowledge and wisdom. Yes. I think the Antichrist will do the same thing, that he will be literally born as an infant. And then obviously when he reaches probably the age of 30, 30. he yeah. will now <laughs> emerge on the scene as the false messiah of the unsaved world. Of course, he's going to try to emulate in every way that he can. Uh, fascinating that you that you referred to that as uh, you know as he'll grow in so quote quote unquote wisdom and stature as the seed of the serpent. And and I forget if it was something that you made a point of in the final Nephilim or if it's something I picked up along the way. But it's interesting to, and I'm almost sure you did that the seed of the serpent, of course seed is what we would uh, associate with coming from the male, the father. Uh, But the seed of the woman, well, women don't have seed. They have an egg. So that has to be, don't you believe, a reference to the immaculate conception of Christ, that that only a woman, a virgin, could conceive and bring forth a child without a seed donor from a human male, correct? Exactly. Exactly. And it was very, it was actually critical, right? Because we're told in scripture that sin itself is inherited, right? In Adam, all die, that we right. all inherit the sin nature from Adam through every person. And I believe it passes through the father in scripture. And I believe this is what, when you read the King James Version, it's referred to as begetting. When you see that word begat, it's not just that you father, physically fathered a child, it's referencing this spiritual inheritance. And so in order to bring that to an end, Jesus Christ had to not be begotten of Adam. 
So that's why he is the only begotten son of God that he, he's not so that the, the, the sinful genetics ended there because he was, he was conceived of God, the father of the Holy spirit, of course, put in Mary. That's how he became the singular seed of the woman, the only person born that way. Uh, and his nature was fully divine. And that's how he was able to redeem us being both fully man and fully divine without sin. That's why I think you know, when we say John 3, 16, it's so easy to say, God to love the world. He gave his only begotten son. You kind of just, you know, we know it so well from childhood, but that term has an extreme significance and importance to us because it, it was God undoing what took place in the Garden of Eden? And we see this in, in the scriptures, right? We see this in 1 Corinthians 15. That talks about the that's how Jesus is called the last Adam. Right. Yeah. He, Adam is actually the father of sinful humanity. Jesus is now the father of sinless humanity. Because when you're now in him and sharing his genetics, his spirit, his body, because we're going to take on his body, we're going to be as him, it's undoing all that work of sin. So it's really um a powerful picture. In that one little phrase, see to the woman of what God had to do to redeem us. Amen. Amen. One of the reasons that I love the fact that the King James Bible kept the word begotten and many other Bible versions might change it to one and only son in John 3, 16. But that's not really true because God had many sons, the Benai Elohim, but the only begotten son, of course, is our Redeemer. Amen. And, and yeah, and so that ties me back to the first chapter in the final Nephilim. You begin, you know, when I first started reading about quantum physics here, I was going, whoa, <laughs> that's really over my head. But you, you contend that quantum physics is actually opening the door to spiritual understanding. And since you just talked about Christ being the, uh, the beginning of uh, eternal life and us being the family of God rather than coming from the sin nature that we inherited with Adam. Talk to me how that quantum physics sort of ties in and sets the tone for your book. Right. I thought it was important to really highlight that because I think as the as as we see the world, events in the world, developments in the world start to converge more and more with scripture, I believe that's actually an indicator that we are very, very close to the end times. And I think with quantum physics, what I wanted to explain was that quantum physics, which, of course, is the study of subatomic particles. You think back to high school, we'll keep Mm. it simple, protons, electrons, neutrons, the atom, what makes up matter in this world, the basic building blocks of the universe. It is starting to really, it's the one scientific discipline that's starting to, I, I believe, peak into the spirit realm. Because what they what they found out is that when you look at subatomic particles, they don't behave according to the normal laws of physics physics that we right. understand generally in society. And so I compare it because I believe a lot of what they are discovering in science, the Bible has explained in the nature of God. For example, I talk about this idea of quantum superposition, where a subatomic particle can exist in two states at once, being a, an electron can be spinning both spinning up and spinning down at the same time. Hmm. A phenomenon that, that, that baffled physicists for years and then now they dub it superposition and i say and i submit that the bible has expressed that for millennia jesus says reflects this all throughout scripture he says that he prayed on earth during his ministry to the father in heaven and but yet said i and my father are one right two different locations but yet they are one we read later in the scriptures that not just not just the Father and the Son, but three that bear witness: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. The Shema, you know, the Lord our God is one. This idea that God, the Father, and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are separate but yet one at the same time, and I believe that right. 
These are things that are tough to comprehend, but I believe that what I think is happening is that in the spirit realm, which is outside of physics, outside of time, God can exist, not just in multiple states at once, but also multiple times. Yeah. God, because God is outside of time. I think that's that's a really important thing when we look at prophecy, because God in Isaiah chapter 46, and I, and I cite this in the opening of the book, you know, God says in that chapter, if you, Israel, want to know that how I am God, I'm going to, how can I prove to you that I am the true God, El Elyon, the most high above the fallen angels, above the demons, it's prophecy. I'm the only being who can tell you the future from ancient times. Right, right. You know, I have to, and God said, I've told, I've declared the end from the beginning. And so I think, so I use the, the I really try to use quantum physics to just give a, uh, an object lesson to explain these concepts that still many people are baffled. Well, what does the Trinity mean? How does it right. work? And I think that as we see science catching on to that, it's showing us that everything is converging towards the fulfillment of all prophecy, which of course is the book of Revelation and the Great Tribulation. Yeah, I agree. In fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Albert Einstein actually said something like, the more I learn of physics, the more I'm drawn to metaphysics. And I think that's the closest he ever got to referring to the spiritual realm uh, from a perspective that we would call religious. But uh, um, nevertheless, yeah. And so you even tied that into, for example, the Ecclesiastes of that which has been is that which shall be. There's nothing new under the sun. And it, it's back to this whole thing of time, you know, that God can exist outside of time. Uh, you you refer to um, uh, Colossians about through, by him, Jesus, all things consist. And therefore, he's holding all the molecules together with this exactly. very quantum physics power that we, whatever he calls it, you know, we're exactly as quantum physics. And that, that's called the omega point in quantum physics. That, that, that's a that's a concept. There's one force that's holding the entire universe together. And I believe that's exactly what the Bible says. Even the idea, you know, I had I had a uh, an interesting interview, so to speak, you know, to say uh, recently where I was actually a debate. I didn't really, you know, the host was debating me on a show, really oh. challenging the Bible. And we, and we talked about quantum physics and he said, hey, you know, you talk about matter and quantum physics says that everything that matter itself is real, which isn't exactly what it says. But it says that ultimately all everything originates from light, that matter itself hmm. is a form of light, which is the, actually what E equals MC squared is explaining. Right. And so that that famous Einstein's famous equation. And so I said, you know, isn't it interesting that quantum physics says that everything emanates from light? And what is God's one of the first things that God says in the Bible? Let there be light. Be light. Yeah. And that that ignites the creative process. So even though wow. even that the Bible is demonstrated, there's a quantum physics thought experiment uh, named uh, for Schrodinger, a famous physicist called Schrodinger's cat that goes through a simulation. And this is done by physics students all over the world. They do they, they go through this thought experiment that deals with a scenario where a cat is in a box and is alive and dead at the same time, which again is how Jesus describes himself. He's, he said, I was dead, but I am alive evermore. Yeah. So all these types of physics time bending things, I think God is revealing that we can understand his nature by seeing him as being outside of time. You know, the, the, in the book of Revelation, he describes Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Right, right. Think about that. You know, the gravity, what that's saying, that 
Jesus's crucifixion took place from the before the world was created. How could that be? Or at the creation of the world, how could that possibly be? Unless it's, of course, God exists outside of time. And I think that that's the key to understanding, I think, really interpreting Revelation. Because what I, what I point out is that God said, as you said in Ecclesiastes, that everything, there's nothing new under the sun. The thing that shall be has already been. And so I believe that the true way to understand the complex prophecies of Revelation is by going back to the beginning. God told us he's declared the end from the beginning. So I really identify and focus on four, I think, critical events from early in scripture that are all foreshadows. And I think typologies that help us understand and truly decipher Revelation. And I think that, and that's kind of the guiding force throughout the book, the final Nephilim. And I think that's really the most effective way. In fact, I, I would go as far to say that I believe that foreshadowing, you know, in Hosea, God says that he uses similitudes, which again is the idea of repetition, that things are going to repeat. I, I call it God's writing style. Yeah. God is really using that as his way of explaining complex concepts, prophecy, and who he is and how, how you know, really it's, it's his style of, of revealing prophecy to us in, the, in scripture. Yeah, it, it's really fascinating. You know, typology, uh, I am uh, sad to say that that was something I grew up ignoring. In fact, uh, I remember once I had the the, the, the blessed um, opportunity to go spend time with a Christian family in the Netherlands over a Christmas, New Year's holiday years ago. And at that time, um, the uh, there was a, a married couple and the husband uh, was trying to express how important typology was in the Bible, but he struggled with English and his wife was the interpreter and I could never quite get on the same page with him. But I truly believe God was trying to use him to show me something and he's since passed. But now I wish I could go back and thank him yes. <laughs> for sharing <laughs> yeah. that with me. And Hi, we hope you're enjoying the podcast, but I want to take a moment to remind you of something very important. There are secrets in the Bible the world doesn't want you to know. And the world is fast approaching the end game, and we want to expose the coming deception before time runs out. Freedom of speech is under attack, and evil elements within governments and multinational corporations are trying to prevent you from learning the truth. Scott and I are being censored by social media platforms as we speak. This is true, so you can help us use the satanic global elite's own tools against them. Subscribe to Bible Mysteries Premium Podcast so the controlled media can't shut us down. We can use our own platforms to help expose them and keep you informed. But to do that, we need your support. Help us to go full-time with Bible Mysteries. Just $7 a month gives you every current episode ad-free without these annoying appeals. You also get full access to our special guest interviews and special events, downloadable show notes, our Bible Mysteries monthly newsletter, and access to the community forum where we answer your questions. Just go to BibleMysteries.Supercast.com to help us stop the assault on Christianity and free speech. And don't forget, you can always donate any amount to support us at utbnow.com. These gifts are tax deductible. Thanks again, and here's the show. So speaking of typology, what I want to do now is talk to you about uh, another aspect in your book that truly uh, um, opened my eyes, and we're talking about time now, uh, back to the idea of time, is how you discuss the reverse order of Ezekiel 38 and 39 concerning the battle of Gog. Uh, and the country of Magog, I struggled with that, thinking that they were in consecutive order. 
And I would read the chapter about uh, Gog coming into the land of Israel that was delivered and brought back from the sword, living safely without villages or walls. And I kept looking at modern Israel today saying, they've got checkpoints everywhere. Exactly. They're not living safely. But but you did you apply this thinking about going back, uh, declaring the end from the beginning uh, to understand that? Is that where you came to a, a realization of the reverse order of those two chapters? Well, you know, um, that 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 interpretation uh, that I believe, again, that Ezekiel 38 and 39, that there are actually two wars or battles of God, may God being described in reverse order, really came out of a series of exchanges and debating on email by someone who's very gracious, Chris White, who's a used to be a Christian blogger, had a YouTube channel and his authors have written several books. And back way before I was an author, when I was just uh, getting into Bible prophecy extensively, mm-hmm. really getting into it, I used to email him on his YouTube channel. And we, he did a video uh, about Gog Magog and why Ezekiel 38 was could not be, had to be the, the fulfilled at Revelation chapter 20, which, of course, is when we see the final assault by Satan right. on the holy city after a thousand year reign of Christ. And uh, when he's finally punished for good and cast into the lake of fire. And we went kind of back and forth on that. And it just really, his arguments kind of just convinced me. And so that kind of pushed me to say, I got to go back now in scripture and really mm. make sense. And, and he, and so uh, of, of this, of, of these chat, of these two chapters, because it's very complex. And when I looked at it, you know, like you said, it's, it's true. There's no way that when you see the description of Israel in uh, in Ezekiel chapter 38, that could be the Israel of today. Israel today is surrounded by walls, by gates specifically. And I think that's for a reason. I think God has uh, put Israel in this situation for us today as students of the word to know that that cannot be the battle. That is not Israel in Ezekiel 38. It's clearly, and we see this in scripture in the prophecies of the millennial reign. That's when the sword will be beaten to plowshare. There'll, yes. be There'll be no more war in the land. So Israel can dwell safely. And Jesus says this in prophecy that Israel will dwell safely in their land. So there'll be no more need for weapons. There'll be no more need for walls and gates. And so that battle does take place at the end of the millennium. But there is a first battle. I believe that's described in Ezekiel 39. If you look at some of the conditions as well, yeah, even the, even the, even the details really vary. The, the Ezekiel 38 war, which I believe is the second war, is a complete destruction of God's armies. Right. Whereas we're told in Ezekiel 39, a sixth of his army will be spared. So right. again, even the punishments and how they're destroyed are very, very different. And a lot of the details. Also, uh, in Ezekiel 39, we see a reference to a seven-year cleansing period where yeah. the land has to be cleansed from all the damage and, and bodies, and they're putting signposts up. So Again, this would why would this would not take place at the end of the millennium? So I believe the Ezekiel thirty nine battle is again referring to a, I believe that I believe that's at the start of the great tribulation, and I believe it's a battle that's going to awake Israel to knowledge of uh, knowledge and revival of worship of God the Father Yahweh. Yeah, before they get to understanding Jesus as their Messiah. And I think the critical thing of the most critical detail in Ezekiel 39 is when we're told that God specifically says that his name will no longer be profaned. Yeah, Israel will now stop profaning his name. And I think that this idea that God is demonstrating his power to Israel supernaturally so they will no longer 
profane or pollute his name and acknowledge him as as with true reverence and worship again that could never take place at the end of millennium in the millennium jesus will be ruling from the throne of david the seat of david in the temple for a thousand years israel will clearly acknowledge him in fact the israelites will be the celebrities of the millennial reign you know we're told in scripture that people will seize an israelite and say take me Take me to Jerusalem, to your God. So right. they are going to be fully worshiping and understanding Jesus as Yeshua HaMashiach. So the fact that that battle in Ezekiel 39 is just awakening them to stop profaning God's name, to me, is the, the clinching scripture to show this is the first battle of Gog Magog that I believe takes place right at the start of the Great Tribulation. And Ezekiel 38 is describing the end times post-millennial battle when Satan makes his final assault and is punished for good. Amen. That was a great awakening for me to see that. I was putting 38 and 39 both as the event that led to the seven years of tribulation and not see. And, and I knew that the, the Gog battle of uh, Revelation 20 was a separate battle at the end of the thousand years. But it never dawned on me that 38 was describing that battle, because just like you said, in, in chapter 39, God declares after he delivers them with only a six remaining of, of God's army. He says, from that day forward, they will know that I am their God and they're my people. And, exactly. and prior to that, he's in Hosea. He says, they're not my people. You right. know, he's still hiding his face from them. So it's it's going to be a glorious day, uh, although I think while that battle takes place may very well be the time when the rapture occurs. and we're hardly even missed, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I agree completely. And I think that I wouldn't even be surprised if the Antichrist tries to take credit yeah. for God's supernatural victory in the first Gog-Magog battle. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a great book. Because Gog, as you point out, um, that entity has, he's been around a long time, right? <laughs> he's not just a Johnny-come-lately. Uh, and In fact, you describe in, in your book, uh, The Final Nephilim, that he's Apollyon. He's that individual, correct, that's in the bottomless pit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I have a chapter dedicated to this called Return of the Antichrist, where really I go to Revelation 17, uh, where... Uh, the angel who's kind of escorting John and showing him the different events and images and guiding him tells him, I'm going to explain the, what this seven-headed beast that, that, of course, we see throughout Revelation, what the heads mean. And he, there's this uh, very mysterious prophecy that says, or, or, or interpretation, this is the seven heads are seven kings. Uh, five are fallen, one is, one is yet to come and shall continue a short space. And the eighth, who is of the seven, is that beast, the Antichrist. And so I think it's explaining, I believe that passage is explaining that the Antichrist has existed before. Yeah. And I believe that's happened by the Antichrist, this spirit of Apollyon, who I believe is a fallen angel, has been who that currently dwells in the abyss, because we're told unequivocally in Revelation chapter nine that he emerges from the bottomless pit, the abusos, that I believe that he has been permitted to indwell seven figures throughout biblical history. And I, and I think what the angels explaining to John was the chronology that at, at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, which I believe was 96 AD, five had already died. That this is, that's why it says five are fallen. One, the sixth one was alive at that time. And I believe that was Emperor Domitian, but there was one more to come before the Antichrist. And says, he shall continue a short space. And I believe that one to come will be Gog, that this Apollyon spirit will indwell Gog at, for that first Gog-Magog battle. And the reason I think, uh, the reason I believe that is when you look again in Ezekiel chapter 38, 
is a very interesting statement. First of all, what I find is that with all of these leaders, these seven leaders, they have lots of similar traits. Yeah. One is their absolute genocidal, uh, first of all, their uh, antipathy towards God. They want to overthrow God. So right. I start off with Nimrod, of course, who's tried built Tower of Babel, building a one world government, trying to reach heaven, I believe, ascend into the spirit realm. And, and if I may, just to help yeah. people that may not have read the book yet, he is now describing, because in the book, you write that these persons, personages, Nimrod, and you're about to name Pharaoh, Sennacherib, and whatever, uh, these are all personages that were embodied by this spirit, by this Gog spirit, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Seven Sorry to interrupt. These <laughs> figures were all possessed, literally indwelled by this spirit of Apollyon. And so, yes, mm -hmm. start with Nimrod. Uh, again, the Tower of Babel Rebellion, a one world government trying to, I believe, access the spiritual realm, trying to reach into heaven, defy God. Uh, and notice, too, and I want to point out, you'll see this with every, almost all these figures, that God really directly addresses these figures. God came down personally yeah. to destroy the Tower of Babel and scatter the nations. Then you have uh, Pharaoh, of course. Again, God was very involved in Pharaoh, obviously yeah. the 10 plagues of the Exodus and then destroying him personally at the Red, at the Red Sea. Uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Again, you see he was a persecutor of Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the first temple. All these things. Again, God personally destroying him. God speaking, addressing him through the prophet Daniel numerous times, punishing him directly, supernaturally, making him a hybrid, a half beast, half man for seven years. So again, not only do these figures get a response usually directly from God. They also give us glimpses into the Antichrist train. Again, you look at Nebuchadnezzar. He built a statue of himself in Daniel chapter 2 that to be worshipped under penalty of death. Again, a foreshadow of the image of the beast, which must be worshipped under penalty of death. And then, right. of course, when you look at the dimensions, it was 60 cubits high, 6 cubits broad, and 6 instruments played to signal it was time for worship and of course that's a foreshadow of 666 the number of the beast in revelation 13 then number four i point to sennacherib who is not very famous in biblical we don't talk about sennacherib a lot but he has uh, numerous uh for, i think traits that align with all these leaders and the antichrist one he destroyed the northern kingdom and tried to destroy the southern kingdom to try and conquer jerusalem right the goal right. of the antichrist but also when he sent his vizier, essentially, Rabshakeh, to address, he had his armies marshaled outside of Israel, prepared to battle, but wanted to persuade them to surrender. And that whole dialogue between Rabshakeh speaking in Hebrew, since he spoke in their tongue, yeah, uh, to, to try and scare the Israelites from, from going to God, he really, it's really, I think, a foreshadow of the false prophet, how he's going to work. With the Antichrist, because he says, he tells them, don't say God will save us. Don't rely on God. He's really trying to make a religious argument. Yeah. And not only that, he actually says, if you follow Sennacherib, he will lead you to a new promised land. He actually offers them another promised land. So it's very much like the strong delusion. Of course, God supernaturally destroyed their entire army. Uh, so number five is Antiochus uh, Epiphanes. Of the Seleucid Empire, he's described in Daniel chapter 11. The book of Maccabees really goes into detail about how much of an antichrist foreshadowed he was. Just, you know, he was genocidal against the Israelites. Right. Killed thousands of Israelites and outlawed temple worship. Again, when we look, think about Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy that there'll be worship in the temple. But in the midpoint, the antichrist is going to outlaw 
mosaic temple worship, exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. And he offered a sacrifice, a pig, on the altar in the temple, which I believe Jesus is referencing when he references the abomination of desolation. That was the original abomination of desolation, which will be ultimately fulfilled by the Antichrist, of course, when he sets up his own image in the temple and declares yeah. himself to be God. So another another one. And then and I believe Dimidian was six, who was alive at the time that John was alive. Um, so he was the one who is, but I'll get to Gog because I don't want to leave Gog out. So the, the, key, the thing I want to say about Gog in addition to everything we've discussed, and again, this is Gog, G-O-G, in Ezekiel 38, there's an interesting passage where the Lord, Yahweh, says, are you he who I have spoken of by the, my servants, the prophets? And I believe that, to me, takes Gog from being any modern-day political leader. Rather talking about Vladimir right. Putin or Erdogan or any leader, because this God saying, "Are you the one I've spoken of from old time prophets in in ancient times in yeah. multiple books of the Bible in the Septuagint version of Ezekiel thirty eight? Of course, the Septuagint is the oldest version of the Old Testament translated from Paleo Paleo Hebrew into Greek mm -hmm. in roughly the second century BC." It says, you are the one I've spoken of by my servants, the prophets, definitively. Mm. So, and I think, again, that shows to me that God is saying to us uh, as, his, as his children to understand his word, that he is this figure who has been repeating all throughout scripture, who, again, in the Old Testament, he's referred to as the Assyrian, but it's just this, this same angelic spirit that will ultimately come from the abyss and indwell the eighth, the Antichrist, who is the eighth of the seven. It yeah. says he's actually of the seven. So he's he has the same spirit in him, and he will be the final fulfillment of the, the beast spirit, the actual Antichrist. Exactly. You know, that that was such a fascinating treatment that you gave of those. And I, I never saw the connection of God's divine association. He literally came down and stopped the Tower of Babel that, you know, poured the plagues upon Pharaoh. Uh, you know, the, the supernaturally is the word, I guess we would use intervening in those events. But what about Judas Iscariot? Now, I would have, uh, up till I read your book, I would have included him as being amongst those because he is the only other person in the Bible referred to as the son of perdition by Jesus. And that which comes out, the beast, is also called the son of perdition. What connection do you draw between Judas Iscariot and that thing in him that Christ said is a devil? Yeah, I, I think there's a strong connection between Judas and the Antichrist. And I think he is uh, certainly from a, a typology standpoint, definitely a foreshadow of the Antichrist. Like you said, <laughs> uh -huh. Jesus called him the son of perdition, the exact title the Apostle Paul uses uh -huh. for the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Right. Jesus also said that, uh, have I not chosen you 12, but one of you is a devil, uh -huh. referring to Judas. But the significance of that in Greek uh, that that term diabolos is the devil, a term that's only used for Satan. Mm. It's not the same term that we see for devils in scripture, which refer to demons. That's demonion. So it's really, again, another title only used for the only used for the devil. Interesting. Another distinguishing fact about Judas is that he was the only person in the Bible who was indwelled by Satan. 
He's literally possessed by Satan in the moments before he goes to the Roman authorities and the Pharisees to betray Jesus. And so, which I, again, I think is a foreshadow of the Antichrist who will be indwelled by a fallen angel, the, the angel Apollyon, who currently is in the abyss, but will emerge at the fifth trumpet of Revelation. And then the other thing I point to in the book is uh, the prophecies in the Old Testament that are actually about Judas. And, you know, there's an interesting passage in Acts chapter one, when the disciples are selecting a, a replacement for Judas. They, they want to pick the, a new disciple. Because obviously Judas has died now, killed himself, and he's obviously was a traitor. And they, Peter speaks, and in, in his prayer, essentially, they're basically praying, they were, he, he, he references two different Psalms that he says were about Judas, prophecies from the book of Psalms that he says were about Judas. And uh, the, the the first was that, they, that the first part that I point to is it says that, that he would lose essentially his office as bishop and another would take his place, which of mm. course they were fulfilling at that time when they were selecting a new disciple who was going to, right, and they picked Matthias to replace him. Right. But then he refers to another prophecy that says that, referring to Judas, that says, uh, Essentially says, let this wicked man stand before God and Satan at his right hand. It's a very interesting passage that this that there's this idea of this prophecy of basically that in the spirit, I, I believe in the spirit sense or in the spirit realm, Judas is literally had Satan at his right hand mm. in defiance of God. And again, if you think about the relationship of the Antichrist and Satan, Satan one being his father, but also giving him his seat, giving his power, his authority, this concept of the right hand is really one of a power relationship where it's a, a position of giving, granting authority, that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And so um, so that I, I really, uh, it, it, it's really, for me, was really compelling. There was something very sinister about Judas. And then Peter goes on to even say that referring to Judas's death, that he went to his own place, referring to him going to hell. Mm -hmm. So again, there was something about him. They realized after his death that he was almost, is, is almost was his, was he either possessed, it was a, the, the, the satanic possession, was it his own spirit was corrupted. But yeah, certainly lots of connections to the, anti, to the Antichrist for sure. And many uh, church fathers in the first, second, and third centuries actually be believed that Judas if not the Antichrist, would be the false prophet. Oh, that's interesting. I'd never considered the false prophet uh, type, but boy, you're right. He could be Rabshakeh's type as well. You know Exactly. So that's, that's fascinating. Really, really interesting stuff. Hey, thank you for listening today. Don't forget to catch part two of my fascinating interview with Ryan Peterson. And remember, it's only available for Bible Mysteries premium podcast subscribers. Subscribe today at BibleMysteries.Supercast.com. Thank you for listening today. If you're enjoying these messages and would like to support us, you can make a tax-deductible donation through our Unlock the Bible Now app, which is free to download from your device's app store, or go to utbnow.com. We appreciate you for giving whatever the Lord lays upon your heart. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to Bible Mysteries Premium Podcast. You can even gift a subscription to a friend. That's right. Remember, just go to BibleMysteries.Supercast.com to join and help us expose the satanic global elite, or make a tax-deductible donation at utbnow.com. We need your help to fight the global censorship of the truth.
Thanks for your support.